I have been looking at questions as a researcher on geopolitics and economics. It's a fancy word, but it really means the study of, of how this planet is politically controlled by a tiny handful of people who uh, are absolutely corrupt, as, as Lord Acton said a century ago. And these elites, back in the late 70s and the 80s, began funding something called uh, genetic manipulation or genetic engineering. And it was based on something which is an utter scientific fallacy known as reductionism. Darwin came up with the brilliant thesis that genes have no inherent nature, so there's no problem shooting genes from a, a different species with a gene cannon, uh, something that's inherently instable. Microbiologists uh, and the GMO agribusiness companies like Syngenta, DuPont, and Dow Chemicals, who are, who are the three largest players in, in the GMO game worldwide, are literally playing with fire, and they are making the human species uh, the guinea pigs of their of their dice game. Now, I what uh, got me into this research that led to the Seeds of Destruction book in the first place, uh, Gary, was was something that I uh, came across in in researching uh, quite a different uh, story oh several years ago, and that was the fact that three primarily American companies dominate the world market in GMO patents. And those three companies are primarily chemical companies that have become agribusiness or biosciences. That's the new code word for uh, genetic manipulation companies, biosciences. Uh, they dominate the patents on seeds for soybeans, seeds for corn, those are the two main feedstocks that are used to feed all the cattle, all the the meat that is on our uh, dinner tables in, in uh, the United States and worldwide, basically. And Americans are a meat-eating nation. So all of those products contain genetically modified uh, plant material in large quantities. Now, uh, the fact that three primarily U.S. companies control the patents on these valuable uh, feedstocks is alarming enough. And then I happen to know a little bit about the history of those three companies going back to the First World War, and they have had intimate ties to Pentagon biological warfare projects from 1914 to the present day, including such wonderful things as Agent Orange, where the courts in New York City are still... Uh, uh, fighting, uh, uh, hearing lawsuits from uh, damaged American veterans from the Vietnam era, as well as Vietnamese citizens who have not gotten one penny of settlement from uh, the U.S. government for known damages to human life of, of Agent Orange that was sprayed over the, the fields of Vietnam during the war. These companies have a track record of brazen abuse of public trust, more than brazen abuse, fraud, manipulation of data and so forth. And the more I dug into that, uh, I realized that this was really a story of power and obsession for control. You talked about the, the uh, perfect storm, and uh, I agree with virtually everything uh, you outlined there in terms of the destruction of the U.S. economy internally over the last uh, 35 years, basically. The uh, 
the last element in this uh, that goes back to a quote that Tanya Kissinger uh, purportedly made in the 1970s. If you control oil, you control entire nations and the economy and so forth. If you control food, you control the people directly. And that really is the leitmotif. My first book was called A Century of War, the Anglo-American Oil Politics in the New World Order. And this book that was just released by uh, globalresearch.ca in Canada, Seeds of Destruction, talks about the second leg of Henry Kissinger's global quest for control. Uh, now, what became more and more clear to me as I was doing research in this is that the the story of GMO isn't so much a story about uh, corporate greed, although corporate greed is in every uh, corner of this story. It's not so much a story about uh, the health issues of GMO, although the health issues are horrifying. I realized that it was a story about uh, total ultimate control over the seed supply of this planet by three or four private corporations worldwide, corporations that are indistinguishable in terms of their revolving door policies of executives going from companies like Monsanto into the Food and Drug Administration, back to Monsanto and so forth, or the USDA, uh, Department of Agriculture, that uh, this is one cartel, and it's a strategic cartel of uh, really based on the East India Company model of the British in the in the 18th and early 19th century, where the monarchy in England gave a franchise to a bunch of buccaneers to set up a company exclusively uh, dealing with India. They had a private army. They uh, ran the opium trade into China in the 1840s. Uh, they did uh, any number of horrendous things to, to the population of, of India and all outside the borders of, of uh, any legal restraints. They were a law unto themselves. And this is the direction that this uh, seed cartel, I call it, the uh, the four horsemen of the GMO apocalypse, Monsanto, DuPont, uh, Dow Chemical, and Syngenta in Switzerland, this is the direction that they are taking us. Now, what really got me alarmed is I went back to the history of this. I'm an economic historian, I suppose you would say, uh, fundamentally. And I went back to the history. Back in 1992, then-President George Herbert Walker Bush uh, had a private meeting in the White House with very, very top executives of Monsanto. And they convinced him, they convinced Father Bush to issue an executive order that all government agencies henceforth will treat GMO patented plants, genetic modified plants, uh, as being substantially equivalent. Now listen to this, uh, if your readers don't know this expression, linguistic manipulation of the highest order, substantially equivalent to normal corn, normal soybeans, normal cotton, normal wheat, normal rice. And therefore, because it's substantially equivalent, an ear of GMO corn kind of looks more or less like an ear of uh, good old Iowa sweet corn, uh, hybrid corn. So we don't need any special government tests on this stuff. Uh, some of your readers might get a little alarmed at what I'm going to say now, but they need to hear it. The U.S. government since 1992 
has done everything in their power to prevent any independent scientific tests on the health effects of GMO. Why? I maintain in the book, in the Seeds of Destruction book, this is a much, much more uh, sinister agenda behind genetic manipulation. The sinister agenda is power, control, and population reduction on a massive scale worldwide. Uh, I'm saying this very, very measured. I am not exaggerating. And what leads me to that conclusion, among other things, are the fact that one private foundation, an American foundation, whose fortune was built on blood and oil over the last century, the Rockefeller Foundation, funded with its private foundation money more than $100 million worth of genetic manipulation research from the beginning. In 1938, two Rockefeller Foundation scientists created through their grants an artificial field in biology called molecular biology, which today is so dominant that it's like the fossil fuel theory of, of oil. Nobody bothers to question uh, the scientific basis of that, but it's based on a reductionism science that's utterly upside down. So, but with money, money talks, uh, people walk, and scientists, I guess, are uh, no less venal than, than most people, and they, uh, in pursuit of uh, very uh, lucrative grant money, in pursuit of professorships at Rockefeller University or other universities that are funded by Rockefeller money, uh, or Monsanto money now is, is the agenda. Monsanto, DuPont, Dow Chemical, British Petroleum. The, these powerful multinational corporations are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars. University of California, Berkeley, my alma mater, Princeton University, Yale, Harvard, all the elite universities, so that scientists come out there mouthing the line, talking the talk, as you say, of uh, the GMO lobby. The cover story in last week's Business Week was a fantastic puff piece for Monsanto, how the new CEO of Monsanto has turned the company around and is winning, as they put it, the ground war. Well, uh, I can just say to your listeners, we're losing the ground war because there is no independent information on this, this the, the real damage that the uh, genetic manipulation of our food supply, food chain, has been done doing to our, uh, our population over the last 10 years. American people have become the largest pool of human guinea pigs in world history. They were exposed. Most people don't even realize this because by law, get this now, by law, it's forbidden to label in the United States of America that a product contains a genetically manipulated uh, product that can be injurious to your health, but we don't know because the government refuses to fund long-term independent 10-year or 15-year long studies before releasing this thing onto the public uh, food chain. Uh, it is the utter height of not just irresponsibility, but one has to think that there's a plan behind this. And that's, that's really what led me to write the book, number one, and number two, to, uh, to try to... Uh, get this as widely disseminated as possible so that people get a wake-up call uh, two minutes before midnight and realize not only uh, have, have uh, this elite clique of people, uh, power-obsessed people, destroyed the American economy and much of the world's economy with it, potentially with this 
subprime uh, madness, but now they are about to destroy the human food chain. I think ultimately their aim is to uh, reduce the population orders of magnitude from the present level. Ted Turner, the billionaire heir of CNN, mm -hmm. uh, mentioned a figure of 225 million people would be a comfortable figure for human life on this planet for him. Well, Mr. Turner uh, or Mr. Rockefeller or Mr. Gates, who is up to his ears in funding uh, uh, various of these GMO programs in Africa and elsewhere, uh, I have a different view, and I think most of the listeners of, of your program would also have a quite different view of how many people uh, would be uh, notable, but uh, I uh, certainly am not going to be the one to play God and decide what, what number of people I'm going to live with or not. William, could we uh, just digress to a point that might be a, a catalyst for seeing this again? Yeah. Um, there were the eugenicists back in the 18, late 1800s, Dr. Popino, Pope, uh, there, was, um, uh, there was a Sanger, there were Margaret Sanger, there were many individuals who truly believed, and they were considered the more uh, liberal of the establishment, that, that those who were feeble-minded, those who did not come from good genetic stock, should simply be eliminated. They suggested 10% right. would mm -hmm. be a good place to start, and they had a lot of support. In fact, I went back to do, I was doing a documentary, and I was just amazed at how many universities, including people from Harvard and some of the others, were in a like mind, that if we want the world to be a better place for those people who are capable of making it a better place, then we'd best separate out all those people who are a drag on this whole uh, right. ship going forward. Do you see that the Bill Gates and the people who are the titans of this era uh, might be aligning themselves with the eugenicists of that era? Absolutely. There's no question about it. I go into this in, in uh, some great detail in the Seeds of Destruction book. But the after the war, the eugenics society was funded and financed from the uh, basically from the 1920s on by... Andrew Carnegie of the Carnegie Steel Fortune, uh, John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil Fortune, and names like Kellogg, like Procter of Procter & Gamble, and so forth. And they, as, as you just said, they were fully into the American eugenics agenda, what you described as negative eugenics, where you get rid of the undesirables, and uh, positive eugenics, where you simply uh, uh, breed the desirables. So it's, they, and they even had an organization that Rockefeller and the others funded called the American Breeders Association. That uh, was a part of their eugenics program. They had a problem in 1945 because uh, what's very uh, little known, and they would love to keep it unknown, the Rockefeller Foundation brought German eugenics into life in the 1920s before Adolf Hitler ever uh, came close to seizing power and financed the German eugenics movement, the Rockefeller Foundation, these good distinguished souls of uh, respectability, uh, financed Hitler eugenics until 1939 when they said, well, this is getting a little bit too hot politically, so maybe we better lower our profile. 1939 was the eve of the Nazi invasion of Poland. and. Rockefeller Foundation trustees were coming back from visits to the Nazi scientists, the Nazi doctors in, in Berlin and Munich and elsewhere, who
who were doing uh, brain research with with the brains of humans who uh, died under perhaps bizarre circumstances in uh, various uh, Nazi prisons and so forth, and they were uh, coming back and saying the German, uh, you know, the the Nazis in Germany are doing uh, what we only dream about doing. They're putting their money where their mouth is and really carrying out this eugenics program. Well, of course, after the war, people like uh, Adolf Mengele, Dr. Death, uh, from the concentration camp infamy, and the Nuremberg trials made this whole field of eugenics a little bit politically embarrassing for respectable, God-fearing Americans of the Rockefeller Foundation. So what did they do? John D. Rockefeller III, the grandson of the founder of the oil fortune, who was passionately, till his death, committed to the agenda of eugenics and population reduction, uh, they decided to change the name of eugenics to, guess what, genetics. So the entire field of genetic engineering, genetic manipulation, biotechnology, as it's uh, euphemistically called today, is part of this Rockefeller eugenics project under uh, sheep's clothing of some sort. So we're we're supposed to believe that this is the key to uh, creating wonderful new uh, advances in science. This is the key to golden rice, which will prevent uh, blindness in, in babies who have a vitamin A deficiency uh, in Asia and so forth. And so all of it is rubbish. And in most of it, you can track down statements by the Rockefeller Foundation themselves. When they're put into a corner, they have to confess, yes, well, you'd have to eat nine kilograms, that's the equivalent about about 20 pounds of rice per day to have the requisite amount of vitamin A from this golden rice that they're so uh, promoting as the big uh, uh, poster child of the GMO revolution. So it's just there is a political agenda behind this. You look every step of the way, scientists who try to get at the truth, like Arpad Pustai, a dear friend in Scotland who was at the uh, State Rowett Institute in the 1990s, got fired for going on television telling the truth that the brains and the organs of rats fed with a diet of GMO potatoes were dramatically shrunk from from normal uh, rats fed with normal food. And he was scared. He was a proponent of GMO. He believed the PR of Monsanto at all, and he came out of that experience absolutely destroyed Black, uh, blackballed from his profession and so forth. The Perhaps the most respected scientist in the whole GMO field at the time. So, uh, yeah. I, I'd like to, I'm, I'd like to put two questions to you, but f- uh, in, in this context. Mm-hmm. We have a 10 million millionaires and 973 billionaires currently in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned that the majority of these individuals seem to place their own personal tastes and desires and needs above anything that might really make a fundamental difference in helping the world become a better place. Mm -hmm. They're already bribing and paying astronomical fees to get their sons or daughters into the so-called best preschools, Mm -hmm. kindergartens, and day schools, and then they want to get them into the best colleges, Everything is to nurture this child Mm -hmm. to be separate and apart and to exclude them. And so much of what we know that's different between the wealthy and non-wealthy 
is the right of exclusion. The wealthier you are, the more exclusive becomes your domain, yeah. where you live and where you eat and the clothes mm-hmm. you wear, the people you hang out with, even though fundamentally you're the same person as anyone else. But we really go out of our way to show we don't want to be around people who are not like us. Mm-hmm. That is the basis, then, of my concern that if they want to have a genetically engineered son or daughter who is six foot three and blonde and blue-eyed and smart and athletic and can win a gold in any race, right. what then does that do for everyone else who is not? Doesn't that end up with a pinnage? Doesn't it end up with uh, some excessive uh, social hubris to those who are considered the slackers? Who's going to want to have these other people? Who's going to hire them? What what role would then the vast, vast majority, 99% of the population, play or uh, if they can't be a part of anything? And then on the other end, uh, that's one issue. And the separate issue is, let's go back to the Rockefeller University and the Rockefeller Foundation. And in the mm-hmm. 1950s and early 60s, they had uh, developed the special grain of rice that was supposed to be more disease-resistant, uh, require less water, and produce a higher yield of protein. In India at the time, and Bangladesh, and Pakistan, you had community, uh, community cooperative sharing. You had maybe uh, two, three, four hundred families who had small plots of land, anywhere from an acre to maybe ten acres. Mm-hmm. And if you went there, each one of those had different foods. One was growing cashews, another growing uh, lentils, someone else growing um, uh, rhubarb. But every single person shared so you didn't have a currency in hard cash but you had the currency of barter and sharing yeah along came they were they were poor but they were not homeless and they were not starving to death their daughters weren't sold into prostitution Mm -hmm. and their sons sent off to work in a brick factory at age seven instead in came the genetic revolution the green revolution first the green revolution so all Mm -hmm. these people's properties went by the wayside and now you had one grain, one crop that required tractors and pesticides that polluted the water mm-hmm. and all those other people then didn't have any way of, of, of bartering and a lot of them then had to migrate to the cities and that led to some of the social decay that we have seen in disintegration of the family. Mm-hmm. Why isn't that part of the story ever mentioned when it comes to the Rockefellers and the guy that won the Nobel Prize for developing this particular gene why Norman don't we ever Borlaug. see the other side yeah. of this rainbow? Well, that's, uh, that's one of the things mm. I address in the book, because it is a coherent history. This is the uh, extraordinary thing about this, Gary, the, the history of the mad pursuit of control over human life on this planet goes back to the very beginnings of, of uh, these powerful, powerful elite uh, families that... Uh, believe that they are uh, endowed by God, they're predestined uh, to have this power. And, of course, John D. Rockefeller was a very, very diligent Baptist. He taught Sunday school in the Baptist church and so forth. And he basically had a, a belief that he, was, he had been chosen by God. Andrew Carnegie had the same thing, the, uh, that he was wealthy because it was a sign of, of God's uh, choosing him to be wealthy. And, you know, there's no limit to what you can get away with if you think uh, the Lord is on my side for everything I do and I don't have to uh, look around when I uh, force my rivals out of business through unsavory practices. So every bit of the way, this this, this common thread connecting, this is obsession with power and with setting themselves off 
from the rest of the human species. But I'm sorry, uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, if he wore pants, had to put them on one leg at a time, just like you and I do. So, uh, you know, to my mind, this is this is a uh, a mental disease, and I, I've known through through my life some very very wealthy people, and I think. Uh, Often I, 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 I look at them and I realize these people are really, really poor human beings. They are uh, most often, more often than not, reflecting a horrible, unloved childhood, probably raised by some paid nanny that uh, couldn't care less for this uh, little rich kid. And uh, the, the real parents had no time to pay the slightest attention uh, to their children. So they, uh, they perpetuate this this kind of uh, hatred and paranoia toward others, especially others of, of uh, less social position, and uh, that becomes this agenda of, of mass genocide. If we take the actual United Nations Genocide Treaty, the whole proliferation by the United States government, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USAID, and so forth, and the private foundations, Rockefeller Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, et al., in Africa and elsewhere, uh, uh, this ought to be indicted. Some of these people ought to be indicted very, very uh, immediately for the crimes of genocide. How are they going to be indicted when we haven't even gotten around to bringing any bill of particulars against the architects of the Iraqi uh, debacle? Well, that's a very good question. Why haven't we? Why, why uh, have we uh, sat back passively and watched a Democratic majority in Congress uh, simply spit on the uh, uh, the vote for change that got them into into the majority uh, in 2004. They've just turned their back on that and are uh, playing the same power game as as the Cheney Bush administration is playing with Iraq and everything else. There, uh, there's a now now uh, a bill working its way through the Senate. It's passed the Congress almost unanimously, called the Homegrown Terrorism. Prevention Act. It was introduced by Congressman Jane Harmon of California, and uh, if you look into the details of this, it makes your hair stand on end. If you buy a book from Amazon.com, you're uh, likely as not to be vulnerable to a uh, U.S. federal prosecutor deciding to examine what books you've read. I mean, this is like Fahrenheit 451, where we're going as a as a nation, and the GMO thing, where you don't have a right to know what your children are eating on the, uh, you know, from the supermarket to the breakfast table. That's, that's part of this, in my view. It's but 1984 in, in the uh, uh, year 2007. When you look back, and let's just say you took a look at the framers of the Declaration of Independence, and you look at the, uh, the articles that Madison uh, and Payne and Jefferson and Franklin and the rest were working on, Many of them were humanist. They, they believed in their religions. They tend mm-hmm. to be conservative in their religious belief, but very progressive at the humanistic level. Mm-hmm. And many of their ideas, in fact, many of their exact words, in fact, st- <laughs> verbatim uh, d- m- uh, statements in the Declaration of Independence came from uh, Locke and other philosophers mm-hmm. and in the age of the, the, the reasonists and those in the age of reason who didn't believe in a monotheistic principle of human nature. They weren't, they weren't mm-hmm. believers in the grand uh, uh, manifest destiny. If you were to take a look at the people at that point helping to shape and format America, and then you take a look at the people today, 
What is the principal difference in the nature of the people as well as in the direction they're going, and what is the likely outcome? Well, we know what the outcome was from the framers of the Constitution for a good 200 years, and it served us rather well. The people today, and this this really is is a, a very chilling thing to see, since uh, the 11th of September 2001, the trampling on the basic constitutional rights of citizens has become almost a matter of ho-hum commonplace that the media barely even reports on it anymore. How many of your listeners have even ever heard of the fact that something called the Homegrown Terrorism Act is about to become law of the United States, such that if you entertain beliefs that are non-conventional in the in the uh, eyes of uh, a current administration or a future administration, you're subject to prosecution uh, for thought crimes. I mean, that's what it amounts to, thought crimes. Uh, so it the, passed the House. Uh, all but ten people voted for it. Yes, yes, it's Could absolutely flabbergasting. Yeah, the ver- but the very same people who also voted to give away habeas corpus. I mean, we are literally in a pre-police state set. We're we're at, we're no different than Mussolini is in power in this 1933 in mm-hmm. Italy. That's where mm-hmm. we're at today. Some some uh, say it's 1933 Germany, which is a little bit nastier than 1933 Mussolini. Yeah, and but all it takes is some uh, some event in the United States for them to justify kicking in the executive order they've already signed both Clinton signed the executive order and Bush signed the executive order for uh, in effect uh, martial law that would uh, mm. would be terrible in its implications so I don't trust either the Democrats or Republicans but the American people seems to be a little a little more ahead of the curve than what we give them credit for they're just not becoming proactive on what to do about mm. it mm-hmm. well there's I, one why do you think what? that Ron Paul you know Ron Paul yesterday raised six million dollars yesterday no, I didn't. I One didn't. day, I, just I've, over the uh, internet, six million dollars. He's he's had uh, a fabulously successful internet campaign, I know, but I didn't realize. The, but he uh, is history. the only candidate that wants to revert rights back to the states, get the government out of our lives, stop all this, and he would stop a lot. I would stop the World Bank, GATT, and and the World Trade Organization, of which we have usurped, which is usurped, and uh, our own uh, laws. And mm-hmm. in an, all of these, and, and talk about the World Bank, uh, the world debt, the International Monetary Fund, and the fact that while we're seeing currencies traded, uh, like George Soros traded in currencies and both caused a major meltdown, that Clinton had to come in with Simon and bail out his buddies in mm-hmm. Mexico with the peso, but also caused a, um, a stagflation and a massive recession in uh, Russia, when he uh, shorted the uh, ruble and did so in a major article in the Times of London about why it wasn't worth what it should be worth, he capitalized. Mm-hmm. Everybody else lost. The average Russian lost tons of money, yep. and they never have fully recovered those who were poor. Talk yep. about what it means when you can when you can trade in oil. So when mm-hmm. people see, oh, gee whiz, the price of oil today is $94 a gallon. How did that happen when the supply and demand had been fairly, uh, fairly regulated 
Where did this suddenly come from? Well, how about (laughs) the fact that over 33% of the total value of oil comes from commodity traders? Why hasn't anybody? Democratic Republican says, make it a law. You cannot trade in essential commodities like fuel or food. And uh, the hedge funds borrowing 30 to 1 against uh, triple bonded junk uh, bonds and derivatives now that are worth nothing. And, and here's one thing. No one, no one, no economist, no one has touched this. I've talked about it repeatedly. I'd like your thoughts on this. Okay. This is very important. How is it that when they had $1.5 trillion in subprime mortgages, those were immediately traded off and bundled and packaged along with others as AAA rated bonds? Um, and then the the hedge funds picked those up and then borrowed 20 to 30 to 1 against that, over mm-hmm. overstating their actual value. Oh, we've got a $2 billion, an $8 billion, a $10 billion hedge fund. In point of fact, it was 20 to 30 times less than that in actual value, but they made their debt, meaning their the borrow, what they borrowed against, an asset. Since mm-hmm. when does a debt become an asset? And now that we have seen $225 billion thus far drop out of that market, that means that if they borrowed about a trillion dollars, that means that there's still 20 to $30 trillion in non-collateralized, non-secured debt on the books of hedge funds, banks, central banks, and equity partnerships. No one's talking about it. That, to me, is one gigantic negative vortex that could suck this economy sideways and down. Not a word about it. Well, there's uh, any direction you want to pull on this thread of, of this subprime uh, madness, uh, you, you get numbers that just make the hair stand on end. Uh, this, you know, Paulson, the uh, Treasury Secretary, former Goldman Sachs chairman, and his friends in Wall Street and the large banks are turning cartwheels to try to keep this thing under control. Number one, because when Paulson was at Goldman Sachs, he was legally responsible for the fact that Goldman Sachs was one of the main bundlers of these uh, subprime mortgages, these poison pills that are now polluting the world uh, financial system. And the the whole business goes back to something that Alan Greenspan, this great uh, senior uh, uh, citizen now who's written, written his memoirs and uh, taking pot shots at everybody from the uh, Mount Olympus there, well, Alan Greenspan, securitization, which is the name, the trade name for this process, uh, that was Alan Greenspan's great uh, attempt at immortality. He said, we are going to diffuse risk globally so that we have no more risk of bank failures. We're going to allow banks to give loans, credit card loans, mortgage loans, whatever you, and then they could get those loans off their books so they could go on and make other loans. Uh, they could get those loans off their books by selling them at a at an attractive price to a securitizer, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, uh, Bear Stearns, you, you name it, everybody was in the game. And then they would take, let's say, uh, mortgages, which at the beginning of Greenspan's real estate bubble, of course, uh, the most creditworthy people uh, went into the waters of, of buying a larger home and so forth. But as the bubble went on and the prices started really uh, zooming in city after city across America, more people got in on the bandwagon. And they thought, uh, you know, they discovered uh, the, the Midas uh, gold machine here. 
<coughs> simply buy a house and flip it in uh, two or three months and sell it for double what you paid for it. Uh, this, this is just, uh, it doesn't get much better than this. Well, this was all predictable. I was writing articles about it at the time uh, in 2003. I said this is Greenspan's attempt to uh, get out of the dot-com bubble debacle by creating the real estate bubble. And a real estate bubble he created totally predictably. Well, this securitization has, in my estimation, has probably spelt the end of the domination of the dollar in the world economy forever. As a reserve currency, the basis, as you described earlier in your comments, uh, uh, the basis on which the United States has been able to finance a budget deficit for every year almost since 1971 when it left the gold standard. So the subprime scandal is only the tip of a horrendous iceberg. Uh, you have credit card debts that are about to come unraveled because people are illegally having their homes seized and foreclosed by banks who don't really hold the title, the true title to the homes anymore, but they have friendly judges who don't bother to even ask a judge in Ohio last month bothered to ask uh, congratulations to him and when Deutsche Bank one of the biggest banks in the world the German bank uh, Deutsche Bank who's the trustee for these uh, subprime bundled securities these bonds uh, said well we have a promise to receive these mortgages at a future future date the judge said I don't want a promise to to receive these mortgages I want the actual title of property so that you have a ground to sue and foreclose against these people. If you can't produce that, you have no standing in court. Goodbye. And uh, that decision appeared for one day in the pages of the New York, New York Times and then rapidly disappeared. So uh, they're sitting on, uh, on a, an explosion potential that is orders of magnitude beyond anything that happened in the 1929-31 uh, period in the U.S., because they've been borrowing 20 to $30 against a single dollar. Yeah. And who yeah. knew this? Who knew that you had that kind of leverage? The leverage of this, uh, this process is just uh, mind-boggling. But you know when I first got the, the indication that something was really amiss? It was two years ago when I am also a filmmaker. I've, I've made three mm. films this year, and uh, important films, including Vaccine Nation, AIDS, mm. Inc., and Gulf War Syndrome Killing Our Own, which has won mm -hmm. about 33 awards. And I know how hard it is to make a film and the financing and, and all, the, all the ramifications of filmmaking. And suddenly I started seeing that hundreds, hundreds of films were being produced, big budget films, and the money was coming from hedge funds. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, you're never going to see a nickel. Any educated investor knows you never invest in Hollywood. Because right. they don't know, they don't share the money. You 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 mm -hmm. get a you know you get dinner with Tom Cruise, but don't ever expect to see a dime. <laughs> and and it doesn't you know it, you'd have get to be insane. Yeah, if, <laughs> if, if if if, but that's what they were doing, and I knew something is wrong. Then yeah. I started to realize, that if they've got thirty dollars to one and it's all all borrowed, they could have the millions and tens of millions for the ego investing, because that's all it is, an ego investing, yeah. because they don't have to show return like that to their people because they can keep spending that dollar. If they want more, they just keep borrowing against what they, they lose 50 million. They borrow 50 million mm -hmm. with only one 
uh, one against twenty to thirty dollars return. My goodness! So it's mm-hmm. all one gigantic um, hole in the carpet, and a big person is going to walk on that carpet and sing. So I'm concerned. I really appreciate this interview. I want to invite you back because I want to get in depth on topics that we didn't discuss uh, in greater detail about Monsanto and some of the other things. Mm-hmm. But if people would like to go to your website, please give us your website. All right. It's www.engdalgeopolitics. I'll spell that E-N-G-D-A-H-L-G-E-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S dot net. www.engdalgeopolitics.net. Or you can just Google my name, uh, F. William Engdahl or William Engdahl, and it'll come up. Uh, the other thing is people who are interested in the Seeds of Destruction book, if they either go to Amazon.com, it's available through there, or directly to the publisher globalresearch.ca. It's www.globalresearch.ca for Canada. They will get a copy through that. All the best to you on this project. I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you very much, Gary. My guest, William Hengdahl, E-N-G-D-A-H-L, author of Seeds of Destruction, plus the other book, The Century of War.